Welcome to the Women Want Strong Men podcast. I'm your host, Amy Stuttle. I believe it takes a strong man to appreciate a strong woman, and I'm here to bring a unique perspective to empower both sexes. I love talking with health experts, thought leaders, influencers, and people who have insightful information to share with us about our health, our society, and our pursuit for success and prosperity. So welcome to the show. On today's episode, I have my very first attorney, and that is Mr. Rick Collins. Rick is nationally recognized as a legal authority on anabolic steroids, human growth hormone, and other performance-enhancing substances. He was admitted to the New York Bar in 1985 and served as an assistant district attorney for five years. He is also the author of a popular book about androgens called Legal Muscle. So welcome to the show, Rick. Thank you very much. Thanks for inviting me on, Amy. Yeah, I'm excited for you to be here. So you've done several high-profile cases and represented individuals that now have some pretty cool episodes about them. You have an episode on Hulu called The Steroid Swindler, which you're in a lot of that. I just watched that the other day, and I recommend others to watch that. And you also know some people in the Netflix series Hall of Shame. So I want to talk about those. But first, I want to lay the groundwork about testosterone and how it became a Schedule 3 drug. So maybe let's just start there. Let's head back to the George Bush days. And how did testosterone become a Schedule 3 drug? And what other drugs are in this class? So I often say that testosterone and anabolic steroids, which are synthetic variations on testosterone, really it's the only drug that was criminalized, not because of what it does bad, but because of what it does well. And that is it can enhance performance, certainly muscle and power, which can be useful in some sports. And so the story begins in 1988 when there was a Canadian sprinter by the name of Ben Johnson who ran really, really fast at the Seoul Olympics and then tested positive for an anabolic steroid called Winstrel. And the sports world went crazy and the anti-doping movement really took off because Suddenly, you're faced with this Canadian who beats the American in the Olympics, sets a world record, and is now found to have been violating the conditions of the sport, the rules of the sport regarding banned substances. And so Congress got involved in the U.S., and Congress passed a law in 1990. It went into effect in 1991 when President Bush signed it. And the law basically took anabolic steroids, all of these synthetic hormones that are variations of a natural hormone that's in the body of every man, woman, and child in the world, which is testosterone, and made it into a Schedule Three controlled substance, which is along the same lines as some Vicodin, various types of precursors of recreational drugs, opiates of different kinds. And so really, steroids and testosterone are the apple in the orange crate of the Controlled Substances Act. There's no other hormone in there. The drugs are not taken for the typical reasons of either getting high, either as a sedative or a stimulant or a hallucinogen. These are taken for the physical changes that the body can have to become more muscular or leaner. And so really, we can debate whether Congress really had sufficient reason to lump it in in the same way, but that's where testosterone is. I mean, you put it great. The only drug of its kind in that class that actually does good and not harm. And they've also labeled it as it's, quote, addictive. I mean, I don't see people laying around the streets with you know, testosterone needles in their arm, when they (laughs) tag it as addictive, what are they even referring to there? 
Yeah, there was very little evidence that of any sort of addictive potential back then. There have been some studies. In theory, almost everything is addictive. Exercise can be addictive. Anything that's positively reinforcing can ultimately be addictive. But back when Congress passed the law, there really was very little evidence of that. And you're right, as far as the social scourge of narcotics and recreational drugs, where people are losing their jobs or can't take care of their children because they've got a needle in their arm somewhere in an alley, none of that applies. I was involved in a research study back 2006, where we looked at who's using anabolic steroids and why are they using them illegally, non-medically. And the answer is, even though we can talk about the doping scandals, like in the Balco case that you referenced as part of that Netflix Hall of Shame story, or the Hulu story where, you know, there may have been some athletes involved, The reality is the vast majority of people who are using testosterone non-medically are using it simply to look better when they take a shirt off. It's mostly men in their 30s, sometimes in their 40s, who want to look and feel better. They obtain it illegally, usually from now. It's often over the internet. And clearly, every drug has side effects, right? So let's not make people think that steroids do all good. Obviously, every drug can be abused and has side effects. We need only watch any uh, seven o'clock news story to hear the side effects of every medication that's being promoted actively in a television commercial, right? But the prevalence of those side effects can vary. And with respect to anabolic steroids, I believe the severity and prevalence have been exaggerated to the public and that the driving of the non-medical use underground, which is what that law in 1990 did, actually exacerbates the potential harms because it drives the users away from the medical community. It results in substandard black market products. We should have learned from the prohibition experiment that we did with alcohol that it doesn't work. It just creates more problems. Yeah. So that's what I was going to ask next. Like, what happened whenever this became a Schedule 3? And by the way, you're like a new, fresh attorney at the time, right? So this is like all colliding at the same time. What impact did this have on the criminal justice system and people that were already using this medication? Right. So a little bit of background. Before I went to law school, I competed as a bodybuilder. So I came from the world of performance enhancement, from the world of hardcore muscle. I was a personal trainer worked in the nutrition field. I'm a certified strength and conditioning specialist with the NSCA. So in my avocation, I was very much involved in gym culture. In my profession, I was, as you said, a a prosecutor and then went into criminal defense the same year, 1990, that Congress criminalized anabolic steroids. So it was almost fate sort of, you know, put me in a position where What I knew from my background in fitness was of great use in my defense of the population that now we're suddenly facing criminal charges. And your point is well taken, because before the law changed, nobody really looked at anabolic steroids as hard drugs or in any way related to heroin or cocaine or any methamphetamine or any of the drugs that we typically think of when we think of drugs of abuse or narcotics. 
And so suddenly you had a court system that didn't really understand these people who were using anabolic steroids non-medically. They might have heard some reports about roid rage or other types of very scary reports. And the population of people who were in the gyms and in the trenches were startled to suddenly see that the handcuffs were putting on them for something that they had been using for years as, in their mind, a super vitamin. I don't want to minimize the idea that people... You know, certainly drugs belong in the hands of physicians. That's where medicine should be. But the law, when you create sort of prohibition style laws, you actually separate the physicians from the users. And obviously, this was long before there was any so-called anti-aging medicine or hormone replacement clinics didn't even exist back then. So the only source of the products was the black market. And initially, it was diverted chemicals, FDA-supplied drugs. Ultimately, it became veterinary drugs from Mexico. And now, at this point, the black market is essentially powders, raw powders that are imported from China, cooked up in a kitchen from somebody in a private residence, bottled, labeled with the use of a home printer, and then sold over Instagram or some other social media platform. So this was became a Schedule 3. We're going back 30 or so years ago, right? It's hard to believe yes. that that hasn't changed, right, based on what we know about it being such an important hormone for us to maintain as we age. And it's also a shame women don't even have an FDA-approved version of testosterone, right? It's just like it feels so far behind. But where right. are we headed? Because you are seeing senators petition to either get it rescheduled or deschedule it, but it's mainly because of trans gender rights. So where do you think we're headed here? So the LGBT community had a profound effect on American culture in certainly in the last couple of years. And the folks that are within that community who were assigned female or born female, biological females, seeking to either become male, to become transgender, or simply to become less female and exhibit more male characteristics, more along a non-binary spectrum, will use testosterone prescribed by doctors in order to effectuate that physical change of their body, their phenotype, how they present to the world to match their self-identity, how they see themselves as a person. And so some U.S. senators, too, from Massachusetts, have petitioned the Biden administration to deal with the issue of steroids, namely specifically testosterone, being scheduled as Schedule 3, which creates some roadblocks and obstacles to the free use. It's some impediments. There's triplicate reporting. There's other requirements for Schedule 3 substances. So a person who is assigned male or, or born biological male at birth who seeks to transition to female can access estrogen without any of those impediments. But the person who's born a female looking to become male has all these roadblocks. And so these senators are saying that the break, take off the impediments, take off the obstacles, remove testosterone from Schedule 3 status, or lower it to a lower status within the Controlled Substances Act. And it's basically for the LGBT community of people who are biological females. Let's move on to professional sports. Do you feel that androgens should be banned substances? 
So the whole underpinnings or philosophy of those who say that steroids or other drugs that enhance performance should be banned, so the anti-doping movement is predicated on a couple of ideas. One is preserving the health of athletes, right? So if they take drugs that might be bad for them, they can abuse them and they could get very sick. Another is that arguably it creates an unlevel playing field, right? So you take steroids and I don't and you perform better. I kind of have to, coerces me to have to use, even though maybe I don't want to. And then the last argument, I think, is that there's this thing we consider the spirit of sport, kind of an integrity concept, that using chemicals is against the basic idea of the spirit of sport. There was a doctor a few years ago named Norm Faust who made arguments really refuting all three of those. And certainly this is a valid debate, I think, because Dr. Faust used to argue that the risks inherent when it comes to the health of the athletes in the sport itself can sometimes exceed any of the risks from the drug use, right? So I don't think anybody's going to think that boxing, professional boxing, is necessarily going to be great for your neurological health or that playing professional football is either good for your brain health or orthopedically, right? So there's risks that are inherent in sports that can be quite substantial. UFC, even elite ballet requires health sacrifices for most people. In terms of the concept of the level playing field, well, there are some who say that it's inherently unfair, right? I mean, some athletes are going to have access to better training camps, better coaches, better environments, better equipment, better diet, better training in all respects. There's also genetic advantages, right? I could be the best basketball player that's ever lived, but if I'm five foot two, I'm never going to be in the NBA. Michael Phelps, Olympic swimmer, huge feet, huge advantage for a swimmer in the water over somebody with smaller feet. Somebody who has high testosterone levels naturally may have some advantages over a person who may have very low levels. Does that mean, is that a fair advantage? So there are some arguments that testosterone, arguably in that last example, might actually level the playing field in some respects, right? The athlete who has access to a hyperbaric chamber or to training at altitude is going to have advantages in endurance sports over an athlete who doesn't. Right. I mean, so all of these things, why is that okay? But the use, for example, of EPO, which is a chemical that would do the same thing, is not legal. So and then the last, the spirit of sport, you know, his argument was always that, look, it's not against the spirit of sport. It's the essence of the spirit of sport, being the best, giving the best performance that you're possibly able to give is really what sports are about. And if you choose not to make certain sacrifices because you just don't want to go all the way with it, well, that's on you. Interestingly, there's a Australian businessman based out of London by the name of Aaron D'Souza, who has recently announced an alternative to the Olympics called the Enhanced Games. And he's planning them for December of 2024. And the idea is that there will be no banned substance testing whatsoever. Athletes can use whatever they choose or not choose and everybody's going to compete against each other, and may the best athlete win. You could imagine that there's been enormous pushback on it, and so far I haven't seen that there's any sponsors. I don't know what corporations will be willing to pony up to support it. Saudi Arabia. 
the live maybe. the live golf of the Olympics <laughs> is upon us. <laughs> but it's a wild idea, right? And so those who are in support of it are like, you know, I want to see that. That's the stuff I want to see on television. And those who are against it, obviously, are absolutely horrified. So we'll have to see what happens come December of 2024. How much more sophisticated is the lab testing to pick up on these substances in athletes? And do you think athletes today are able to still circumvent the system? Kind of what they highlight on the Hall of Shame show on Netflix. Can today's athletes get around it? Yeah. And I was the Hall of Shame covers the Balco case, the Bay Area Laboratory cooperative, which was a case of 20 years ago of an elite training facility that catered to some very high profile athletes, including Barry Bonds and Marion Jones and others that ultimately was embroiled in a criminal case involving the distribution of performance enhancing substances. I represented the chemist in that case. For those who remember it, there was a chemical called THG or tetrahydrogestrinone, which was a hybridized molecule, steroid molecule, which because it was a newly created substance by the chemist that I represented, it was undetectable. It's like having a fingerprint that you don't have a standard for, so you can't match it to anything. And so there is an argument that as long as the way that we address anti-doping is to continually to try to find trace amounts of different sorts of chemicals in an athlete's urine or blood, there's always going to be the cat and the mouse and the mouse is always going to try to get away with it to avoid the cat. And so there are many who believe that it will always be that game and that the cheaters are always going to be a little bit ahead of the testers. I mean, look at Lance Armstrong, right? You know, got away with it for years and years and years, denied ever using yeah. performance enhancing drugs, whether it's through microdosing or choice of chemicals or new chemicals. There is an argument that the athletes will who choose to cheat will always be ahead of the testers. Julian Savoyescu is a professor who has offered an alternative and basically looking at health of athletes and health markers of the athletes rather than trying to catch something in their bodies if they deviate from the standards of their normal health testing. For example, if they show a liver count rising, that might be indicative of, let's say, oral methylated anabolic steroids. And so that would be the trigger until they bring them their health back in line. Our main concern is the health of the athletes. That does have some attraction to it. So when it made a Schedule 3, we still feel that impact today, that negative connotation associated with a, quote, steroid. And it really does impact men's decision to take the first step on getting blood work, on coming in and seeing us, because we're still today, 30 years later, working on removing this negative connotation associated with taking testosterone. It's crazy. I could imagine it's frustrating, right? Because there's a number of different reasons for it. One is Ben Johnson, right? One is the idea that it's linked to cheating, that there's some ethical component. We would never think of that if we were to look at, let's say, even for cosmetic use, which is why most people who are using steroids non-medically are using them. We would never say that a woman who chooses to have breast augmentation is cheating, right? Even though she's using some medical technology to look better, but yet we disallow that and that's somehow cheating for men. And that I think is because of the connection to sports, even though most people using steroids are not looking to compete in sports. And I'm sure most men who come to a hormone replacement clinic because they're feeling tired, they're not feeling great, maybe their libido is down, maybe they have no energy, whatever it is, and they test and their levels are low, 
and they would benefit from testosterone replacement therapy, there is that connection to cheating because of the athletes, because of the sports. The other thing is, I think that it was Alan Alda in 1975 who first used the term testosterone poisoning, not as a physical condition, but really metaphorically as sort of a societal problem. In other words, testosterone is the problem with why men do the bad things that men do. Testosterone is what makes men bad. It's what makes for wars. It's what makes for infidelity. It does all of these things. And so that kind of anti-testosterone stigma has grown, I think, over time. Testosterone is sort of the biochemical stand-in for masculinity, right? right? It's what makes males male. Right. And so when we start to demonize masculinity, as we have in this culture to some degree, yes. testosterone comes with it, right? The American Psychological Association in 2019 came out with a position paper. This is the APA came out with a position paper that said that traditional masculinity, traditional masculinity is toxic and harmful to boys and men. I can't imagine 10, 20 years before or at any other time in history that that sort of statement could be made. Certainly there are things, there are toxic aspects to the things that men do and women do as well. But to blame it on testosterone and to blame it on masculinity as it's traditionally existed for decades, for centuries, seems to me that we're in uncharted waters as a society. Yeah, I always used to say it's the weak men that behave like this. Like, let's do a blood test on Harvey Weinstein. You think that ass clown has a high testosterone level? (laughs) I mean, give me a break. You know, like, what's this, you know, correlation equals causation? It's not there. So I think it's kind of easy to blame it on that. But I guarantee if you look at some of these people that we would say are, quote, toxic men, it has nothing to do with what their testosterone levels are. So, yeah, you know, there's bad people of all both genders and sexes. And I don't think testosterone has much to do with it. Testosterone is correlated with aggression in animals because it's basically linked to status seeking. Right. You know, it's linked to being higher on a spectrum, on a hierarchy. And there's abundant research on that for animals. It's linked to aggression because If you're a lion or a moose, how else do you improve your status, right? Right. But if you're a professor in a university and you start biting the other professors, that's not going to improve your status, right? right? That's going to get you thrown out of the university. So certainly ambition and confidence in humans I mean, that's all based on testosterone levels. It's linked, you know, all of those sort of assertiveness, confidence, status seeking are all very pro-social behaviors in most cases. So to sort of throw the baby out with the bathwater is something I think we're doing culturally that is not going in the right direction. So let's talk a little bit about this Netflix series, Hall of Shame, because like you mentioned, you represented the chemist there that created the THG, which was undetectable. And Barry Bonds was known to take that, I believe. And he claims that he thought it was just like a flaxseed oil. So tell us a little bit about that case and how did that end up shaking out? 
Yeah, so that was one of the more highly publicized cases that I had. And that, again, was 20 years ago. But I've had others. And that case worked out. If you watch the show, you'll see it kind of worked out. It came in like a lion and went out like a lamb. Nobody went to jail for very long, including the main guy in the Balco lab, who is probably the focus of most of the series, who continues to kind of present himself as somewhat of a showman and a uh, guru in the area of performance drugs. But do I think in the legacy of Balco, did it change anything? No, because subsequent to it, there was a huge scandal in Major League Baseball involving anabolic steroids and performance drugs. Subsequent to it was the Lance Armstrong revelations. So I don't think we solved through the Balco case the problem of drugs in sport. And the other case, which was featured in the Hulu series, involved a Boston It's a great story. It was an underprivileged kid from Boston who had everything against him growing up, who wound up finding steroids, using steroids, ultimately selling steroids, making them, becoming a millionaire, driving around in luxury cars and having a mansion. That will get you every time. Get you every time. Don't buy the fancy car. It will. And it sounds cliche, but he was actually in the final steps of getting out of the business and relocating and putting it all behind him when the whole thing comes crashing down. I've actually been speaking to some screenwriters in California about making the same story into a scripted movie. I think it would be great. It's kind of like if you've ever seen the movie Blow with Johnny Depp back in the day, it's kind of like Blow on steroids, literally. And so I think it would make a terrific movie. Well, because it probably relates a little bit more to modern time versus the Balco, because he was doing this all through social media and YouTube. And that's really how he got into this. So which is a great point, because he never would have been successful, but for social media. And he created a persona for himself on social media, this character called Musclehead 320, who is this, you know, bigger than life, grandiose, badass which was really not who he was in real life. And it kind of is a metaphor for what we do on social media, right? Everybody to some degree is fronting or curating, presenting themselves. Nobody's putting up the boring shot of them sitting at their desk. They're on a boat. They're, you know, at a luxury car festival. They're on vacation. So many people are filtering. Everything is photoshopped. And so We're making these displays of ourselves that are not really who we are. And there's some argument that steroids, at least at some extreme, become sort of that physical way of doing the same thing. I'm going to reshape myself into something that I can present that's more than or better than who I really am. So there's a lot to really chew on. And I think that that social media angle of the story is huge and would be a big part of the movie. How long was the DEA following him? So, you know, they caught on to him. And the irony of it is that it wasn't the DEA that initially targeted him for the investigation. It was instead the pharmaceutical company whose name and logo he and his partner had basically thoughtlessly used for their product. Like, why would right? you do so, that? Why would you have it the same name and logo as a cancer drug? What he tells me is he thought it was cool. It sounded cool. Did it help sales? 
No, because the company that they used the name and logo of was a cancer drug company. Nobody in the anabolic steroid world, in the user world, had ever heard of that company. They made cancer drugs. If you heard of that company, you weren't using anabolic yeah. steroids. You were being treated for cancer. Right. So there was really no benefit to it. Ironically, it just looked like and sounded like a cool logo to use. And it was the complaints that that company received from people who called up the company and said, hey, your steroids, I'm not using them right. Oh, boy. The bottle I have looks cloudy. And the company was like, our steroids? We don't, (laughs) what? Send us some pictures of that. And the next thing you know, they hired private investigators who started the investigation. So it was really not a steroid investigation. It was a counterfeit trademark investigation that precipitated the entire case. Ironic, unfortunate. I still speak to Tyler often, and hopefully he's set to be released soon and can participate in the fictionalized narrative of his story. Yeah, don't screw with Big Pharma and their brand names. Mm. (laughs) They'll come for you. Can you quickly explain the difference between possessing testosterone and selling testosterone? Sure. So in virtually every state, distributing testosterone, in other words, selling it to somebody else, even giving it to somebody else in most states is a felony. So felony is the more serious level of crime that we deal with. In most states, it is a misdemeanor to possess testosterone or an anabolic steroid without a valid medical prescription. Obviously, prescription from a doctor, valid prescription, all good. But getting it through the black market, no prescription, don't have a right to it for non-medical use, That's a misdemeanor in most states. In a few states, it's actually a felony. So it can be serious to possess an anabolic steroid in any amount outside the scope of a legitimate doctor-patient relationship. And I tell everybody, look, if you think that your hormones are low, that your testosterone is low, black market is not the way to go to deal with it. Lab tests, blood tests, that's the way you start to find out if you should even be on testosterone. And then you speak to a clinic or a physician to get the right advice about it. Where does oral testosterone fall in this mix? I mean, because you do have some supplement stores, you know, we kind of talked offline a little bit. That's basically what my husband took that ended up giving him liver failure, but he purchased it through a brick and mortar store locally. So where does oral testosterone fall in the mix? So oral testosterone, the chemical testosterone, whether it's oral or injectable or even transdermal or topical, that's a Schedule Three drug. I think what you're saying is that there are variations of testosterone, slight chemical tweaks of testosterone that, so for example, things like nandrolone or trenbolone are anabolic steroids that are related to testosterone. And there was a time where these other variations were sold as oral capsules in health food stores. They were called prohormones at the time. Yep. One of them was called Superdrawl, and that might be what you're referring to. And it was related to testosterone. And in order for an oral steroid to survive the first pass through the liver, right, it's got to be methylated. So it's a chemical process that allows that medicine to withstand the first pass through the liver so that it doesn't get all broken down. That allows it to survive in the bloodstream. The problem is when a drug is methylated, it's at the C17, the 17th carbon atom, when it's methylated, it makes it more hepatotoxic because the liver tries to break it down and it can't. And then you take some more of it and the liver's working to break it down and it can't. 
And then the more you take of it, the more stress there is to the liver. And ultimately, you can have severe hepatotoxic effects from oral testosterone-related drugs. And so most of those products are no longer on the market, but they were on the market for a period of time, probably from the turn of the century to maybe 2014 or so. A law changed in 2014, which took the vast majority and kind of cleaned up the market, took them off the market. But it's unfortunate, and and I did hear of other people who have suffered from liver problems Even anabolic steroids as a prescription drug, if taken in massive amounts, oral versions, they can have some liver stress. Yeah, just if somebody's listening that hasn't heard a story in the past that they're just tuning in to hear Rick just quickly, my husband took an over-the-counter supplement that had this pro-hormone in it, and it gave him liver failure. He didn't know what he was taking. He only took it for 45 days. He certainly wasn't intentionally. It was marketed as like a fat shredder, and he took this thing, uh, believing the bottle. You know, we ended up in a lawsuit with the company and, you know so on and so forth there. But there was mislabeling of the product and stuff like that. And I know we're kind of coming up on our time, but let's just talk about this for a few minutes. The supplement company is regulated and unregulated, right? Like unregulated in the sense that it doesn't go through the same loops and jumps that a pharmaceutical drug coming to market goes through, but it is regulated in the sense that they do have to meet certain standards with labeling and they are supposed to have good manufacturing practices and stuff like that. But there are things that sneak through. My husband's is a prime example. You've represented people, professional athletes that have taken just a daily supplement and it had something in there that they didn't expect. So maybe can you kind of talk about that supplement industry and how it's confusing? Sure. And I like to say it's simply differently regulated in the sense that it's regulated differently than the drug industry is, right? If you want to bring a drug to market, you've got to go through phase one, two, and three clinical trials, present it to FDA as a new drug application. FDA has to give you the green light, approve it for you to bring it to market, and then you bring it to market. That costs millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars before you can bring that to market. Would that work with supplements? Probably not. There wouldn't be any supplements on the market. So supplements are regulated in a different way. They aren't required to be pre-approved by FDA. Different than in Canada, for example, and Canada Health Canada actually has to look at the product before it permits it. But in the United States, you can launch the product without it being approved by FDA. But it does have to meet, as you say, certain requirements, good manufacturing, labeling, claims. You can't make claims that are unsubstantiated. You can't make disease claims. You can't say, take my new vitamin capsule and it's going to make your cancer go away or your COVID go away. That would be automatically you get a warning letter from FDA or it would be taken off the market. So it's differently regulated. Unfortunately, that does allow some bad actors to take advantage of the situation. I like to think that many of the players in the supplement industry are good people trying to do the right thing, but there are some bad ones. Years ago, I remember representing a guy who had a fat burner, as you say, and it was an herbal fat burner and he wanted to give it a little extra kick. So what he did was he went into the facility at night when no one else was there, and he sprinkled a drug called clenbuterol, which is a beta-2 agonist used as a bronchial medicine in other countries, not allowed in the United States. We use something called albuterol. But in other countries, they use clenbuterol, and it has a fat-burning effect. But it's a drug. Yeah. And he was sprinkling it into the products. And ultimately, he was caught, and he was federally prosecuted 
when they caught him for doing that. So there is intentional spiking situations that occur. There's also inadvertent situations of cross-contamination. I've represented many athletes on cases involving claims that they were doping or using a banned substance. And in some cases, I've actually confirmed that they didn't intentionally use it, that it was contained in a product that did not have that substance on the label. So I like to recommend that if you're a drug-tested athlete, for sure, you want to try to find products that have some third-party testing. And there are three different third-party testing agencies that will actually look at the products and give a stamp of approval that they've reviewed the products. I think only one of the companies actually tests every batch, which is something that's very important. But that can give you some assurance. And if you're drug tested, I'd also suggest that you never completely use whatever the product you're taking. Save a little bit. Because if you ever tested positive, you'd be able to have a retained sample of whatever that powder or vitamin was. You'd be able to call me, send it to me. I'll send it out to a lab. And we'll see if maybe that was the source of the contaminant. That was actually important in my husband's case. He actually had, because he had two bottles, only took a total of 45 days, but he had 15 pills left and the one bottle that were able to go get tested. And then also, luckily, mm-hmm. he had saved both bottles because whenever we went to our deposition, they had changed the labels and actually then put disclaimers on there about liver stuff, where his original bottle's like, liver safe, believe it or not. Here he the Poor guy is in liver failure. And then on the supplements that show up on the table in the deposition are like, you know, all these little, you know, not safe for your liver, could cause liver injury. And all of a sudden it's like, Mm. no, 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 no. That's not the bottles that we have. So that's good advice because that was very, very important in our case. I'm glad you caught that. And I hope he's okay now. Yes, he is. He doesn't have any cirrhosis of the liver. It was just a painful several months for him. So traumatic experience. So let's just rapid fire on a few questions for you. Are you reading anything interesting right now? Or do you have a favorite podcast? A favorite podcast. I do like Joe Rogan. I listen to Andrew Huberman sometimes. So I like many of the books by Malcolm Gladwell. In one of his books, he did an essay about drugs and sports and whether the system as it's currently practiced works or not. Are one of those cases that we talked about in the Hulu or the Netflix series one of your favorite cases? Or is there a different case that you in your head are like, that was probably my favorite case? So my favorite case, I think, involved, as criminal defense lawyers, many of our clients make bad choices. They're decent people. Maybe they aren't even guilty of what they're charged with, but they were in some way involved, typically. It's very rare that you get somebody who was absolutely 100% innocent in the sense that no crime actually was ever committed. Very rare that that happens. And I once represented a female client who was an elite-level bodybuilder who was charged with selling a single vial of testosterone to an undercover snitch, an informant. And I was able to prove that he had manufactured the entire case, that he had actually made it look He had set her up to make it look like she was selling him a vial when she never sold him anything. And it's an interesting case. If you can probably, I've written about it and I've told the story in some detail in other podcasts, 
but I'll probably tell it again at some point because she remains a good friend of mine. And it's gratifying to me because I was able to take a situation where the prosecutor thought she was 100% guilty and, you know, there was absolutely no room for error to the point where he was grateful that I allowed him to just dismiss the case and not file charges against the office. Do you have a favorite supplement or protein powder or anything that you take on a regular basis? Yeah, I do. I take a lot of vitamins, but I'm a believer in the ones that have the most research. So creatine monohydrate has an abundance of research. I was one of the co-authors on a position stand paper from the International Society of Sports Nutrition on the safety and efficacy of creatine. I do think that's a supplement that virtually everybody should take. It's very beneficial in more than just building muscle. I'm also a believer in protein powder. I'm in favor of an abundance of protein in the diet. I'm not a huge fan of recommended daily allowance. I think that's the absolute floor, not to get malnutrition and die. So I think we benefit by more protein in our diet. I like whey protein. There are some people who prefer plant protein or pea protein. Not a big fan of soy protein for men, but creatine and whey protein are kind of my staples. Well, I should have put in your bio that you're probably the most jacked attorney, right? Like you're in pretty good shape (laughs) over here. So (laughs) thank you. Yeah. Well, if you go to my Instagram, Amy, you'll see I posted some recent workout videos not too long ago. So I'm still walking the walk. So (laughs) knock on wood. Well, I love it. Well, I appreciate your time. Thank you so much. You know, I have some team members going to the Silverback Summit that Allie Gilbert's hosting that you're going to be at. I know they're going to be excited to see and meet you. So thank you for your time today. Fantastic. Thank you. As always, I'll link Rick's bio and Instagram and YouTube videos where the listeners can find him. So everybody have a great day. 